Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this session, we're going to be looking at a surprising, even shocking story that Luke has chosen to include in his his telling of the story of the very first church in Jerusalem. The story is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, down through chapter 5, verse 11. And even though there's a chapter break in the middle of these two sections, they really all go together. The first being the setup for what happens there in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And as I said, this story is in some regards, very, very surprising. It's surprising what happens in the story. It's a bit shocking what happens in the story. Not only that, it's surprising that Luke chose to include this snapshot, right? As an author, he has the freedom to choose what he's going to include and what he's not going to include. And Luke chose to include this snapshot of life in the early church. And this snapshot, therefore, was important to Luke's purposes. And Luke had really an important message I think he wanted to pass on to his readers then and his readers today about the church and about what's really threatening to the church and the the thing the church must be the most concerned about. And so even though the story is surprising and somewhat shocking, it's terribly important for us to listen closely to this story and to pay attention to the message, Luke seems to be speaking to us from it. So let's first set this in context. This snapshot of life in the early church is set somewhere during the first few months or maybe years of the early church's existence. It's not sure when the church began in AD 30, and maybe this is 31, maybe it's 32. We're not really sure exactly when this is, but it's in the early days of the church when things are just getting started. And I think that explains a little bit of why uh, things happen the way they do. The apostles have been preaching and giving a strong, powerful witness to the resurrection of Jesus, including miracles, and that has been drawing people into the new community, the new family of Jesus, and the Spirit of God has been filling his people and changing them, transforming them in some dramatic and beautiful sorts of ways, and that then becomes the setup for what happens in this story. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says this, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And so this is the header. This verse, verse 32, describes life in the early church in general terms as sort of the setup for the details that follow. Notice the way the church is described. Um, They are described as the congregation of those who believed, or the community of those who believed. Faith in Jesus is central to what is uniting them together, and so they are the community of people who have believed, specifically believed, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's who they are. And they are described here as being of one heart and soul. In biblical terminology, the heart doesn't so much refer to the seat of the emotions as it does in the English language, as it refers to the seat of the will, the the control center of the person. The heart is that thing that governs 
a person's thoughts and deeds. It's the control center of their personhood. So the believers were all together in heart and they were all together in soul. The soul, both in Hebrew and in Greek, refers to the self, the whole person. In other words, what Luke is describing here is that the community of believers were like, they were together, heart and soul, with their whole being. Uh, they were united and together. And one of the ways that showed up was in how they viewed their possessions. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. And so this is an important uh, nuance, the way Luke has stated this. He stated that they had possessions. Things belonged to them, but they didn't hold on to them tightly. They, they weren't possessive of them. And so though they had possessions, they weren't possessed by their possessions, that they held them loosely, uh, and they held them loosely for a specific purpose. All things were common property to them. In other words, what's mine is yours. You can use that if you need it. Oh, I can sell that if it'll help you. And so they were holding their property loosely. That sets up then what, ha what Luke describes in the following verses. Notice what he says. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And so the, the ministry of the apostles continues to go forward with great power. They're giving a witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's their job description. That's their vocation. That's what God called them to do. And they're doing it with great power, which likely implies miracles. We've seen repeated mentions of them performing signs, wonders, and miracles. And uh, so the great power uh, probably alludes to that. And abundant grace was upon all the believers. And so there was grace and favor upon the believers. The, the apostles were carrying out their job. And verse 34, for there was not, here's a description of the grace that was upon the believers. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each to the extent that they had a need. And so, again, this is a voluntary thing, similar to what we saw at the end of Acts chapter 2. We get another description of the way the Spirit is changing the hearts of people so that now they're not being possessive of their possessions. And so they're selling them. If somebody's needy, uh, somebody would come and sell some land. They might sell an extra house they had. In other words, there were some wealthy members of the early church, and they didn't cling to their possessions, but they, and, and the way the grammar is worded, this was a regular thing. They were doing this ongoing, right? Like people were selling off a tract of land here or an extra home here or selling some extra property there. They're bringing the money, it says, bringing the proceeds of the sales, Voluntarily, this is not an order. This isn't a program. People are just choosing to do this. And then they're laying them at the apostles' feet, which it, that language represents that the apostles are in charge of the proceeds. So at this point in the organizational structure of this, the apostles have responsibility for making sure the proceeds uh, are handled wisely and distributed to needy people. We will learn very soon in Acts chapter 6, that as, this, as the church continues to grow and new means of needs show up and the complexity of things get a little more uh, intense, that they're going to have to adjust how this happens. And so the apostles are going to appoint some extra people there in Acts chapter 6 to help taking care of needy people. But here, 
the proceeds are brought to the apostles, laid at their feet, and it would be distributed to each one to the extent they had a need. So whoever had a need, uh, here, take this little bit. Oh, you need some. Here, take that. And they were making sure everybody was taken care of. This description portrays life in the early church as one where love is manifest in very concrete, visible, tangible sorts of ways. And Jesus had said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. John chapter 13, verse 35. That's what's going on here. The spirit of Jesus has so filled the hearts of the believers that they are being so transformed that the the haves are gladly, willingly, and voluntarily selling off some of their extra to make sure people who have legitimate needs are being taken care of. Well, then Luke describes one specific individual who does this. He names them. Somebody who's going to become important in the story of Acts later, and this is uh, really a pattern in the way Luke has written the book of Acts, that he introduces major players before they play a major role. And we're introduced to a major player in the story of Acts, and what we learn about him is uh, really some details about both the, his background as well as the kind of person he was, and this becomes the setup for the second half of the story. Verse 36 says this, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, owned a tract of land. So he sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, So Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas. Barnabas will be important to the story of Acts when Saul comes in, and he's going to be the one that introduces Saul to the apostles. He's going to be Paul's Uh, or Saul's first traveling companion on the first missionary journey. So he's going to become an important player in the story of Acts down the road. But here, he's an important person in the early Jerusalem church. So his given name is Joseph. Barnabas is a nickname that the apostles gave him. And the nickname, Luke tells us, is son of encouragement, or perhaps better, son of exhortation, or maybe even son of a prophet or son of prophecy. Uh, bar is Hebrew for son of, Nabas or Navi in Hebrew is prophet, and so he's a son of prophecy or son of exhortation. In other words, Barnabas has the capacity to to exhort and encourage and challenge and speak the words of God to people. So he's an important person in the Jerusalem church that has this ability, this gift of speaking and exhortation and maybe even prophecy in a, 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 certainly in a foretelling sense, but maybe even in a foretelling sense, right? And, And he's also a Levite. Levites were part of the priestly class and They were uh, assistants to the priests in the temple service. They were responsible for things like providing music. They even were performed some kind of like custodian responsibilities. They occasionally had some crowd control responsibilities. They uh, often would carry instruments to and fro various uh, places in the temple for various rituals and all that. And so they were part of the priestly class with priestly responsibilities. So that's who Joseph Barnabas was by heritage and upbringing. And notice he's of Cyprian birth, meaning he's originally from the island of Cyprus. That, that'll that play a role in Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey as well, because they first traveled to Cyprus, 
probably because he had connections there. And so he's a Levite from Cyprus, who's nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles, and he owned a tract of land. So he had a piece of property, which is a bit fascinating because under the Old Testament law, priests and Levites weren't allowed to own land. Uh, but that had changed by the first century, and there's at least some evidence, some records of priests owning lands, and Barnabas is one of them. He owns a tract of land, and he did what many of the other people were doing who had extra. He sold the tract of land, he brought the money, and he lays it at the apostles' feet to be used however they see fit to take care of needy persons among them. Now, all of this, the general description as well as the specific example of Barnabas, is an important description of life in the early church. We saw this at the end of chapter 2. We see it again here. And it was explicit in Luke chapter 2 and thus implied here that this is all motivated by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit who's dwelling among God's people and spurring on and moving them to this level of brotherhood and kinship that leads to generosity and love in these concrete, tangible sorts of ways. And it helps us understand uh, what's what the life in the church is like here in the first century in Jerusalem. And this then becomes the setup for what happens next. And what happens next is really the surprising, shocking bit of the story. The story continues with a counterexample to Joseph Barnabas, an example of a man and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira. So you have all these people bringing their proceeds of their sales and giving them to the apostles. You have Barnabas doing that as well. And now there's a man by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira who are going to do the exact same thing, but they're going to do it in such a way that is hypocritical, deceitful, and underhanded, and they are going to experience the judgment of God because of it. Here's what happens. Now, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, kept back some of the proceeds for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, let's make sure we have some things clear from the get-go. Uh, there is no obligation for anyone to do this. So this is a voluntary choice of Ananias and Sapphira. There's no obligation to give 100% of the proceeds. Uh, you could give a portion of it if you wanted to, or you could give all of it. You could do whatever you wanted with the proceeds. That will become very, very clear in the story and what Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira. They, they didn't have to do this. They didn't have to give 100%. The problem that we're going to see here is that they are in some regards uh, mocking this great work of the Spirit that we see in the church at the end of chapter 4 in an effort to glorify themselves. Let's keep reading and watch what happens in the story. After Ananias, his wife isn't here at this moment, just Ananias, after Ananias brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet, Presumably, he says something we're not told, so we have to read between the lines a little bit. But he, in some way, infers that here's 100% of the proceeds of the sale. We sold this little piece of land. Here's all the money. But it wasn't all the money. We've been told that. 
and here's how Peter responds to Ananias, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the proceeds of the land? Now, you could read that verse and you could immediately assume that Ananias's sin was in keeping some of the money for himself. He was supposed to give 100% of it. But as we read further, it'll become clear that's really not the problem. The problem is the lying to the Holy Spirit, which consisted of lying about the amount of money they were giving. That's the real problem. So let's keep reading and listening to Peter's response. Notice what he says in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, wasn't it under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So do you notice that this tells us a lot about the way this process was done, that the people bringing their money, giving them to the apostles, it was purely voluntary. And we hear that here in Peter's words to him. While it remained unsold, it was your own. It was your own property. You could do with it what you wanted. After it was sold, it was still under your control. You could have kept the money. You could have kept part of the money and given some of the money like you did. And you could have been honest about it, right? So the problem isn't that they didn't give 100%. The problem is they lied about what they were, were giving. And we're not told their motive, but we can read between the lines because, you know, of our own experience of our own heart. And we know the human heart, right? Like there's in some sense, they wanted, they wanted their cake and eat it too, right? They wanted to have the acclaim of being generous like Barnabas and like others. And yet they wanted to use some of that money for their own benefit. And so they said they gave a hundred percent of the proceeds and it wasn't really 100% of the proceeds. And so Peter says, you haven't lied to men, but to God, because God is present in the church. God is the one who's motivating this work. This isn't just a human strategy. This isn't just a human idea. This is God's work among God's people through his spirit here in the church of Jerusalem. And so they're lying to the Holy Spirit. They're lying to God. You have not lied to men, but to God. And what's the result then? Well, as he, Ananias, this is verse 5, heard these words, Ananias collapsed and died, and great fear came upon all those who heard about it. So, as Peter asked these questions of Ananias, immediately the judgment of God falls on Ananias, and Ananias drops dead. <laughs> and great fear came upon all those who heard about this. Like, uh, fear of God and fear of his power and fear of his judgment spread uh, amongst all those who heard this story. Luke goes on narrating the story and says, And some young men got up, covered him up in some sort of cloth, carried him out, and they buried him. Uh, they buried him in a tomb. We have to remember their burial practices were different than ours. It doesn't mean they dug a hole, put him in the hole. Put, they, they put him in a tomb. And perhaps Ananias, if he was from Jerusalem which it would seem like he had a family tomb in the area. Maybe they put him in that tomb or maybe they put him in another tomb temporarily so that his family could eventually be notified and he could be transported to the family tomb. We're not sure, but they carried him out and they buried him. They put him in a tomb. Now, the story continues at this point because we know that Sapphira is involved in this, right? Like, uh, 
Ananias kept back some of the money with his wife's full knowledge. So we know she was involved in this. She just wasn't there when Ananias brought the money. And so we need to figure out what happens with her. So verse 7 continues the story. Now, an interval of about three hours elapsed. And so from the time Ananias had this interchange with Peter and died and the men take him out and they're going to put him in a tomb. It's been about three hours. We don't know where Sapphira was, uh, but for three hours she was gone and she knows nothing about what happened. Maybe that was intentional. Maybe Peter was like, let's keep this on the download to see if Sapphira was involved in this. Uh, maybe it's just a byproduct of they don't have mass communication in their day and age, right? Uh, so and now an interval of about three hours elapsed. And his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And so she shows up to wherever they're gathered, and she has no knowledge of what happened to her husband. And Peter responded to her. He wants to know if she's involved in this. Like, we know she is because we, we got Luke's summary at the beginning. Peter doesn't know. He wants to know if she's involved in this. And so Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this price. And she said, yes, for that price. That, again, gives us this important detail that the issue is lying about the price of the land. It's not not, not giving 100% of the price. It's that they're lying about giving 100% of the price and keeping back some of the money for themselves. And so when she says, oh, yes, that was the price, Peter knows she's in on it, that they agreed to this together. And she is a co-conspirator with her husband to lie to and mock the work of the Spirit among his people there in the church in Jerusalem. And so she says, yes, for that price. So Peter, verse 9, said to her, why is it that you have agreed together, meaning agreed together with her husband, to put the Spirit of the Lord to, to the test? Much like Israel during the Exodus is accused of testing God by their their. Uh, complaining and their lack of faith and all of that, they, Ananias and Sapphira, are putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Behold, Peter says, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And so Peter pronounces on her the same judgment that uh, happened to her husband, Ananias, and immediately, verse 10, she collapsed at his feet and she died. And the young men came in, found her dead, and they wrapped her up. They carried her out in a tomb, uh, buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. This is the first use of the word church in the book of Acts. And we need to remember that the word church doesn't refer to a building or even primarily a religious organization, the word church means assembly, the, the assembly of God's people. In fact, it, it's regularly used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for the congregation of the people of Israel, the assembly of the people of Israel. It's a people term. So the church means the people, and that's why great fear came over the whole church, meaning all the people, all the believers, the whole assembly right there in that moment when Sapphira died, and as word spread throughout the, the assembly of the other believers, right? Like, man, as the word got out, great fear filled them all. Now, as we noted, this is really a fairly shocking episode. It's shocking what happens here in the early church, and it has, I think, an important message for us. And so before we leave this snapshot, let's just 
uh, offer some reflection and some summary to make sure we understand what's really going on. First off, what exactly was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? And the answer to that is the sin was lying about the amount of money that they were bringing to the apostles. And it seems obviously to be driven by self-interest, self-serving motivations. And so their sin is that they sold a piece of property for X amount. They brought only part of that amount, kept back part of it from themselves, and yet tried to look good in front of the church, look like Joseph Barnabas and some of the others by saying, here's 100% of the proceeds when it really wasn't 100% of the proceeds. That really was their sin. Another question then that's important for us to think about and reflect on in this story is, well, why was God so harsh with them? Like, okay, sin happens, right? Like most of us sin. In this case, why was God so harsh with them that he poured out his judgment immediately and they dropped dead right there in front of the gathering of people on the spot? And there's probably a variety of factors involved in answering to that question, one of which would be, obviously, this is uh, a work of the Holy Spirit that is central to God's concerns. God has uh, said all throughout the scriptures how he cares for the widows and the orphans, the poor and the needy, and now his spirit is stirring up people's hearts right here in the new family of Jesus to visibly and tangibly and concretely take care of the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the needy so that everyone is taken care of. So God's at work, and this is this is making a mockery of God's work. That's one reason why I think God's so harsh on it, because it's deeply seated in the values and the heart of God. Another factor in answering this question about why is God so harsh with him also, I think, is where we're at in church history, that this is the first months, year, we're not really sure, but it's right at the beginning of the church. And as the church is getting going and God's spirit is doing this great work and God is restoring his people to himself and to each other, we're right at the beginning of all of that. And God doesn't want things to just get, you know, go off the, the rails right from the beginning. And so he makes an example of Ananias and Sapphira. And this isn't the only time God did this. There's the well-known case in the book of Leviticus during the time period of the Exodus. Again, right at the beginning of uh, the Old Covenant and the forming of the people of Israel, the well-known story in Leviticus 10 of Nadab and Abihu, who offered, quote-unquote, strange fire on the altar, and fire fell from heaven, and immediately they were, they were burned up, they were killed, they were judged because of their disobedience to God as priests. Uh, there's the example of Uzzah in the Old Testament when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into uh, Jerusalem, and they're not carrying the Ark of the Covenant, transporting it the way God prescribed in their law. They're doing it their own way on a cart. And Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the Ark when, it, when it's about to fall off the cart. And he's judged and killed on the spot. There are times, it seems, when God wants to make an example. People say, you are, you are being cavalier and disobedient to my very clear instructions, and you think you're worshiping me, and you think you can do whatever you want, and 
no, you can't. And this seems to happen particularly at the beginnings of new stages in God's plans and God's purposes. And so here we are at the very beginning of the church. And the Spirit of God is doing this incredible work of heart transformation and unity among people. And here comes Ananias and Sapphira to mock that and to do their own thing for their own self-serving reasons. And God makes an example of them. Um, and all of that then leads us to what I think is uh, the third question and really the main point, and that's what's the theme of this episode? And the theme of this episode seems to show up in the repeated refrain. You have it there in verse 5, right after Ananias' death, and it says, Great fear came over all who heard about it. And then again, you have in verse 11, after Sapphira's death, and great fear came over the whole church. Luke seems to include this snapshot. I mean, clearly it reminds us that, you know, everything's not perfect in the early church, right? But he includes this snapshot to teach us a lesson about fear. Like, what should God's people fear? And when you put it in the broader context of the book of Acts, I think this is incredibly powerful because the story right before this is a story where the apostles, Peter and John at least, were arrested and threatened to not ever preach in Jesus' name again. And then the story right after this is where all the apostles are arrested. They are flogged and beaten and told not to preach in the name of Jesus again. And so this snapshot and the way Luke has told the story is sandwiched right in between two stories of persecution, opposition, and hostility. And this story, therefore, with its theme of fear, seems to be incredibly instructive to them and to us. Um, about what the church should fear. Should the church fear persecution and hostility from the outside? Or should the church fear uh, lying and sin and hypocrisy on the inside? In both those persecution accounts that immediately surround the story, Luke mentions nothing about fear. There's no fear. There's prayer for boldness. There's continued preaching and rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer for a shame for the name of Jesus. But there's no fear. But here, Luke highlights fear. And I think it's because what Luke wants us to see in this story is that there is an appropriate kind of fear for the church. Uh, and that that fear is uh, fear for hypocrisy and sin on the inside. That sin and hypocrisy on the inside is a greater threat to the progress of the church than persecution and opposition is from the outside. And that seems to be the message that Luke wants us to learn from the story of Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs>